Civit's E7 N11, the CBAM Global Business Symposium on BRICS and beyond, certainly casts, or what CBAM director Dr. Patelis calls the next ones, its net wide and far to look at which economies will reap rewards for investors and provide potential new markets for firms to explore. The rise of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India and China is now being challenged by a host of other acronyms that place together countries with growth potential for those investors and companies looking for challenges and opportunities. John Hawksworth, Chief Economist, PricewaterhouseCoopers, has a new group of E7 economies, China, India, Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, Mexico and Turkey, and they could become bigger than the G7. Well, I think for the moment we have a situation where the advanced economies like the US and big European economies still have the majority of the world economy. But what we've seen over the last 10 years is there's been very rapid growth in economies like China, India, Brazil, Russia, Mexico, Turkey, Indonesia. And their their influence in the world economy has become ever more important, not least because they've come through the global financial crisis much better than, say, the US and the UK have. They haven't had the same kind of disastrous recessions we've had. China's kept growing at 10% a year. India's kept growing at 8% a year. And their influence in all sorts of political spheres, everything from the, the IMF, the G20, the world climate change negotiations, is also going up. So I think we've increasingly realized that we're in a world where these emerging economies are more influential in both economic and political terms. Now, haven't you taken off a rather big challenge, perhaps um, chewed on it for some time? But if we're going to look at the world in 2050, we've got the G20, the G7. Um, How do you go about measuring it? accurately. Uh, Have you come up with a new model? I I believe you also refer to something called the E7 economies. We have a a model uh, which follows a fairly sort of textbook academic style of of looking at the supply side of the economy and it says that growth is fundamentally driven by four factors. The first factor is just the growth of the working age population and we have projections up to 2050 for all the economies from the United Nations there that we use. The second factor is investment in physical capital, plant and machinery, roads, buildings and so on and we can project forward what investment might be based on historic trends. The third factor is human capital, education. And, and we see that in many of these emerging economies, they've been increasing their ad- average education levels. There's a lot of potential to go further. And the fourth factor is really productivity, actually using that capital and labor better. And by effectively borrowing or you know, using the ideas from the established US and European economies, what we're seeing is that China and India and elsewhere are able to catch up with our levels of productivity and therefore supercharge their growth. In 10 to 20 years, China will be overtaking the U.S. and India will be overtaking Japan as the third largest economy in the world. And Brazil is well-placed to become the fourth largest economy too. Hawksworth again. Well, I think it depends on the exact measurement period, but I think certainly within the next 10 to 20 years we can see China overtaking the U.S., I think we can see uh, India overtaking Japan within the next uh, 10 to 20 years and becoming the third largest economy in the world. And I think longer term we can see Brazil overtaking Japan uh, 
you know, to become the fourth largest economy within the next 30 or 40 years. So I think that those sort of economies are moving up into pole position, as well as economies like Indonesia overtaking Germany or the UK and Turkey overtaking um, Italy. So I think we can see that many of these emerging economies within the next 30 or 40 years are becoming much more important. Um, but I think from a business perspective, one also needs to recognize you know, two things. One, that those, those economies will provide competitors. There will be many uh, very important new companies coming from China and India and Brazil and competing with us. And so we need to recognize that threat. But also we need to see the huge opportunities because these will be massively expanding consumer markets and also markets for things like education and organizations with very good brands like Cambridge University that we're sitting in today you know, have enormous potential in, in markets like China and India that value education education very, very strongly. And, and whereas you know, the domestic markets in, in the UK may be quite mature and slow growing, these, these big new markets can provide huge opportunities for growth for Western companies that can really seize them and can really uh, you know, make a success over there. So why are the BRICs so unstoppable? And what impact will their growth have on commodity prices and markets in the West? Stephen King, Group Chief Economist, HSBC says rising oil prices, metal prices, commodity prices and even food prices are leading to an emerging tilt, which in turn is leading to high inflation. I think that there's a big discussion about globalisation, which really tends to assume that it's good for everyone all the time. Basically, output rises and everyone's better off. When you look at the effects of the BRICS on the rest of the world, we're increasingly finding that there are big shifts in what you might describe as relative prices. Some prices go up, like commodity prices, and other prices go down, like, for example, Western wages. Uh, So when you look at what's happening around the world, you find that there are some obvious winners. There are some relative losers, maybe even some absolute losers. And one obvious example currently is that in the UK, we have this very strange mix of relatively high inflation, no wage growth. The high inflation partly reflects the higher commodity prices, and the higher commodity prices in turn partly reflect the demand coming through from China and India. And we also heard from John Hawksworth earlier about population, didn't we, that you know, population growth was important too. But, but if we go back to your analysis of the uh, commodity prices, uh, is there going to be commodity scarcity in, in the future? You talked about how in the question session that, that actually the defining point of this technological revolution was that we didn't really have technological advance. We had technological replication. Uh, India, China wanting cars, wanting to fly too. Um, it's not a great outlook. Well, it's not perfect unless, of course, you happen to be a commodity producer, in which case um, you'll do very, very well out of this because of the rising commodity prices. Um, But I think it simply reflects an an underlying principle of economics, which is that we do indeed live in a world of scarce resources. We've forgotten about that over the last 50 or 60 years because effectively the Western world had almost like a monopoly access to those scarce resources. Now things are changing in China and India. Um, Relative prices of all these things begin to shift and uh, some countries benefit and others tend to lose out. What about that phrase, emerging tilts? Well, that's a very simple point, that uh, when you look at uh, global growth these days, increasingly it's tilting towards the emerging world. Um, more and more of the growth that we see in the global economy is from China, from India, from Russia, from Brazil, and many other emerging nations, and less and less of it is from the States and Europe. Uh, and what this really means is that over the next 20 or 30 years, you're going to end up probably with China as the biggest economy in the world, the U.S. probably in second place, India in third place. But this is a really dramatic shift in relative economic size over the next few decades. Singling out one of those bricks for closer attention, Russia, might provide a useful pointer to why it's good to come to conferences like this rather than believe all you read in the press. 
Michael Calvi, managing partner Bering Vostok Capital Partners, thinks Russia's bottom-up story provides a good, safe, long-term, predictable investment. I think there's a tendency for people to focus on top-down rather than bottom-up matters. And the top-down in Russia has, has been controversial because the country is still struggling with the fact that it's no longer a political superpower. Uh, but the bottom-up story has been uh, consistently strong. Uh, there's been a generational change that's really transformed the quality of management teams and entrepreneurs, and uh, that's resulting in a lot of uh, rapidly growing companies that still have big potential to grow. And on the political side, uh, I don't understand really what your question is about political instability. I think that Russia is actually one of the you most... Did, you did actually yeah. say that actually if you were in politics, you didn't make much money. But, but if you were in, in business, that was fine. And almost, you know, th- there was a divide between the two. Career prospects, much better in business and industry. Um, you're not going to make a lot of money in politics. Well, the political situation in Russia is what it is, but it's certainly the most important thing for business is predictability. And actually, it's one of the most predictable uh, political regimes or environments uh, among major global economies emerging or developed. Uh, I think the, the real issue or the challenge is about the role of state companies, uh, which are, are, are uh, in- increasingly active in the economy in some ways uh, which are unhealthy. And I wish that the pendulum in that respect would be swinging back towards more uh, more market-oriented. But I think that uh, state, state companies will never be a huge percentage of, the, of most sectors of the economy. But, you know, outside of oil and gas and banking and a few other sectors, the, the, the dominant players are mostly private sector. So where will it be in that league table of economies in 20 years' time? You know, we're going to have uh, China, the USA, Japan being overtaken, Brazil in fourth place. Where will Russia be? I think in 15 or 20 years, Russia will look a lot more like Western European countries than it does, like, of course, like China or India. And it, during that period of time, there's still a convergence or a catch-up uh, factor in most key sectors of the economy that are going to propel rapid growth. But 15 or 20 years from now, Russia will be largely converged. And uh, it's, it's different. It has a shorter runway than, for example, China or India, which might have 50 or 100 years of convergence. And after, after that sort of next 15, you know, 20 years, maybe it's a little bit less, uh, is over, then Russia is really going to have to implement deep reforms in order to continue to grow at the sort of rates that they are now. And that's a question mark. It's the speed of change that's so captivating for analysts looking at these markets and the significant degree of long-term planning needed to get populations educated, skilled and ready to move from rural to urban areas to not only provide the workforces of the future but the middle-class markets too. Putting two heads together is better than one. So we asked Stephen King and Michael Calvey to debate the strengths and weaknesses of the BRICS. Stephen, a nice point to bring you in to have a chat together. Um, invest against the, the trends? Is, is that what you do? Invest counterintuitively or, or perhaps spread your bets? Uh, well, you want to do both in one sense. Uh, investing counterintuitively is always for the brave person. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't work quite so well. Uh, spreading your bets is absolutely desirable. Anyone wants to make sure that not all the eggs are in one basket. The only problem these days is that for financial investors, uh, markets are so closely correlated with one another that it actually becomes more and more difficult to spread one's bets in that particular way. So, yes, absolutely, people have to invest in emerging market themes, uh, but working out what those themes specifically might be is perhaps slightly more tricky. 
there's a natural reaction uh, that says, well, if China's growing quickly, invest in Chinese stocks. That really hasn't worked very well over the last 20 or 30 years. But there are other ways of playing the same story. For example, if China and India are growing quickly, then commodity prices rise. You might want to invest in commodities or commodity companies. You might think about the likelihood of their exchange rates rising. So you might want to think about investing in exchange rate appreciation vis-a-vis the US dollar. It's also worth thinking about Western companies who may have a specific strategy of investing in the emerging world. They actually become less and less Western over time. All these things I think are actually quite important at this stage. And CBAM, the global conference we've had today, the the number of experts from across the globe that it's brought together. We heard Christos Patelis, the director of the CBAM Centre, talk about sustainability and and how they were talking about sustainable economic growth way before um, anybody else 15 years ago when they were formed with the support of Diageo. The importance of conferences like this, getting experts together to, if you like, share your knowledge at a time of great volatility in the world... How important is that, Michael? The unique thing about CBAM is the way it brings together business people and academics in the same forum to talk about uh, common issues. And uh, there aren't that many, uh, there aren't that many uh, organizations like it. So I, I always find it interesting, and I, I think that the topic today is very timely, and the list of speakers uh, really brings together a lot of different perspectives on, on important issues. Stephen, you've learned a few things this morning? Oh, I have. Um, I've learned uh, to be very optimistic about Russia. Oh, I'm not sure if I fully agree with everything, but uh, I, I do think that this is a, a fantastic event in the sense that, um, as we just heard, that you're bringing together academics, business people, uh, making sure that the people in one sense have an important stake in the future of all these countries are discussing things with each other, and I think you can learn an awful lot from that. And the thing I'm curious about, we heard from the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, but Cambridge, it's its knowledge economy, the biotech industries. It's, it's in Brazil. People want a Cambridge education as well. But, but you particularly, Michael, talked about that knowledge, you know, the bottom-up revolution, but needing not just large populations, not just consumers who can buy products, but actually educated people to lead the revolutions on behalf of your country's growth prospects. Russia, sadly, doesn't have enough people but it, the quality of the people are really uh, uh, world-class, and the quality of the education has probably dipped a bit from Soviet periods. But even today, the last 10 years, for the international university computer programming competition, there's like an Olympics of computer programming among the world's leading universities, including Cambridge, MIT, etc. Six of the last 10 years, the winning university has been a Russian university. So even in the post-Soviet period, the quality of education in Russia remains among the best in the world. Well, this is partly a numbers game in the sense that although China and India are not producing the proportion of graduates that might be the case in other parts of the world, the actual numbers being produced, of course, are enormous simply because their populations are so large. So when you look at the number of graduates coming out of Chinese universities, it far exceeds what's taking place in the UK. So I think we have to accept that we are seeing a dramatic improvement in educational attainment across the emerging world, exactly what you'd expect, associated with rising real incomes, and it really creates a kind of virtuous circle for these countries. It is important for all the countries. You know, we talk about the league table, who's better, who's best, who's going to overtake, who, when. But actually, we all need a sustainable world and a sustainable business environment. I agree. I agree too. (laughs) Those acronyms were on the tip of another speaker's tongue. Mr. Aidan Manktelo, Senior Economist and Risk Briefing Manager, Economist Intelligence Unit, who introduced us to the CIVITS, Colombia, Egypt, South Africa, Turkey, Vietnam, Indonesia.
With an average age of just 26, these economies are well-placed to rise up the league tables. Um, sure. So um, these are, this is uh, Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Egypt, Turkey and South Africa. And the idea is that, I mean, there's been increased focus on trying to find a second tier of emerging markets beyond the BRICS for two reasons, really. First, that the, the BRICS doesn't really capture the, the breadth of what's happening in emerging markets, the extent to which so many countries are opening up and attaining much more rapid levels of, of development. And the second issue being that I think for investors, BRICS assets are increasingly well-priced. So there's, there's an interest in finding a sort of second tier of of large emerging markets that could potentially achieve similar growth rates. And that's what we've, we've tried to do with the civets. Do you think that perhaps we don't really know in terms of living in a global world, the development of global economies? Three years ago at the Judge Business School, we were talking about the rise of the BRICS. But now the melting pot is far larger than ever it was before. People are also talking about Turkey as a good economy to invest in when previously they might have thought it was a third world or a slow-growth economy. Things are changing fairly rapidly. They are, yes. I think a lot of these economies are much more on the map now than they were just a few years ago. I mean, you can argue about whether this is a kind of second tier of emerging markets following the BRICS or whether it was, it was more uh, contemporaneous. You know, they started opening up at not dissimilar times, but uh, I think because investors were so focused on uh, China and India particularly initially, that there was less of an incentive to, to drill down to some of the smaller emerging countries. And we're living in a time of great volatility, particularly with Greece, the spring Arab uprisings. People also dubious about whether China can maintain its growth rate when it's got so many rural poor and what's going to happen there politically in terms of the democracy. But Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Egypt, Turkey, South Africa, you talk about the political baseline being supportive. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the key reasons why we'd pick these markets over some other you know, similarly sized emerging economies, you know, like the likes of uh, Nigeria, Pakistan, for example, we just think that for, the, for, the, for these six countries, the political baseline in terms of be, partly being able to avoid serious instability in the future, well, I mean, obviously Egypt's having its issues at the moment, but also in terms of you know, the supporting inst- institutions and the extent to which the politics can support the kind of um, policies needed to sustain good long-term growth. We, we think that these six countries just look a bit better than... Than, than other large emerging markets. Because people often talk about Brazil, don't they, in, in terms of having, um, if you like, redistributed its wealth to the poor. It's brought up its poor to the levels of what's happening elsewhere, perhaps in Western economies. It hasn't left them behind, so it hasn't grown at the expense of the poor. Mm. It's grown with the poor. Do you think that's a lesson others should look at? Yeah, definitely, and that's, that's going to be absolutely crucial. I mean, one, one reason why we quite like the civets is they've all got... Um, They've all got quite young populations, so the average age across the, uh, the six countries is just uh, 26, um, but, which is a, a major source of opportunity uh, in terms of the growth potential. But it does, it does bring, big, big, bring big challenges because the issue is going to be to try, as these populations expand, to try and maintain job creation. And I mean, one, one factor, big factor that lay behind the problems that Egypt's having is that it, the Mubarak regime really failed to do that for its, its young population. It's becoming impossible to know where to invest uh, in the world, you know, to get your head around it. Day to day, it's changing. Um, are these civets a good bet? 
We think so. I mean, partly because of the economic diversification, partly because of the, the young populations, the political stability we talked about. Also, I mean, their economic fundamentals look pretty robust in an emerging market context. It is, it is still dwarfed, really, by the BRICS story. I mean, the BRICS story is so huge. It's so central to this shift in, in gravity in the global economy from, from west to east. Um, and the civets aren't really the civets aren't going to rival the BRICS in terms of size. They aren't going to rival the G7 in terms of size. And even by 2030, you're looking at maybe only uh, Egypt joining um, Indonesia and Turkey in the top 20 global economies. But we just think that for investors looking for sustained long-term growth, in markets beyond the BRICS, these are good countries to be looking at. And just for fun, Mr. Aidan Manktelo left us with a new acronym, the NUTS. Whatever and whoever could that be? Let's let him explain. And, and you boldly also talked about the NUTS who were tough to crack. Can you tell me why you call them NUTS and why they're tough to crack? Um, that was actually more of a little gag for the end of the presentation, but um, it was uh, just to, I think, illustrate maybe slightly silly lengths to which some of the um, uh, emerging market acronym mania has now has now reached. I think I heard something somewhere about mint economies recently as well. And, and yes, not the G7, G20, but, but you know, we've now got the, the E7 or, or whatever. Nigeria, Ukraine, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, they, they were the ones that you called the nuts, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, those, those are more uh, countries that are doing okay this year and might be interesting investors with with more risk appetite but it was it's not it wasn't really intended as a kind of a serious contribution to the debate to be honest okay well i'm giving you 20 pounds you've heard the presentations at the the beginning of, of the cbam symposium if we're looking at 2050 china the usa india where would you put your pounds i think i would oh it's a tricky one Probably on India, I think I, I sort of I, I'm a bit concerned about China's potentially sort of hitting a, a middle income trap and struggling to to get on from there, as well as you know the risks of a, of a crash in the next few years. India is, I think, in the next once it if it can get its um, infrastructure in order and develop its agricultural sector, I think offers you know really huge opportunities. Mm-hmm.